Welcome everyone to In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson, and we're excited to be recording this episode here in Austin, Texas, during the Association of Corporate Counsel's 2018 annual conference. This is our second year recording episodes at the conference. We've gotten some great conversations already today. We'll be recording some more tomorrow. So I encourage our listeners to look out for some of those other conversations as well. I think they're well worth a listen. Today is an exciting conference because we have guests with us today to talk about compliance, and they're fresh off a panel uh, that they've uh, presented for the Ethics and Compliance section. In addition to my partner, Claire Rauscher, who many of you will recognize as one of our favorite podcast guests in a repeat performance, we also have Amy Much and Deborah Chang. So thank you both for being with us here today. I'm glad you could join us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Great. I know you just came off the panel, and I'm not, we're not going to try to replicate everything there. Hopefully some of our listeners maybe even heard you in person. Um, but I think, you know, when I was reading the description, I find compliance interesting just because depending on company size and where it stands, you know, some big companies have these huge compliance programs fully staffed. Other smaller companies, they're like, uh, what is compliance? So I'm interested in your perspectives before we get into some of the nitty-gritty suggestions. Uh, talk to me just a little bit about the role of compliance and how it relates to what you're doing as in-house counsel. And maybe, Amy, we'll just start with you. Sure. So I think that the first thing that I would point out is that I really keep ethics and compliance tied together because I think that a lot of the time you hear you know, compliance, 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 but compliance is just a rote following of rules. And I really think that the trend is to, for most companies that are serious about their ethics and compliance program, they're part and parcel and they really need to be holding hands. And without that ethical component, uh, your compliance program is really still stuck in that check the box stage that the industry experts in the Department of Justice are wanting companies to move beyond. So I think that's sort of the first thing that I point out is that when you're talking about compliance, I'm talking about ethics right there with it. I think that's great. And in your experience, is there a move towards calling it like an ethics and compliance department as opposed to just compliance? Is that changing at all in the kind of the lingo of job descriptions or department organizations? I do think so. In fact, my own title evolved from director of compliance to ethics and compliance officer with it, you know, step in between. So I think that, you know, even if you start out as quote unquote, building a compliance program, you quickly realize that ethics is part of building a compliance program. Now, when you say ethics, and I'm going to ask you to chime in as well, Deborah, I I think like rules of professional responsibility. So I'm, I'm the chair of the ethics committee for the North Carolina State Bar, and we promulgate ethics opinions. I think, though, when we're talking about ethics and compliance, it it's, may include that, but it's much broader than rules of professional conduct. What, what, when we're talking about ethics in, in that context, what are, what are we talking about? Deborah? I think from the perspective of many companies operating today which value their brand image. I mean, it's very closely connected to what they think of themselves as a company and as a corporate culture and as part of the community of their customers, what the norms are and the expectations of how they are supposed to behave that go above and beyond just following the rules. You're talking about code of conduct, 
conflicts mm-hmm. of interest, you know, things that are informing your compliance program and making sure that, you know, when you are looking at, you know, what are the elements of an effective compliance program, you also want to make sure that you have the various elements of an effective ethics program tied in there. So it's not necessarily the same thing as, you know, running a conflicts check for a law firm. It's more like the basics of behavior and like code of conduct. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the corporate culture and making sure that tone from the top, mood in the middle, echo from the bottom, you're getting that it's all consistent. Yes. Great. I hadn't heard that before. The the tone, middle echo. That may be a common in your parlance, but that's new. That's a new uh, way to think about it for me. How much of the ethics is company specific? This is our culture versus a broader expectation of good business standards, right? In terms of conflicts or treating customers right. I'm, I'm wondering how much does the code of conduct really vary from company to company? It does vary quite a bit. I mean, there are some common themes, but I mean, code of conducts can be very short or very lengthy. And I think it's a reflection of the culture of the company itself, because a lot of time, effort, money and consideration actually goes into a company when it creates its code of conduct. And what's interesting is that you know, ethics and compliance as its own field is still relatively new when you think of it as an industry and it's growing by leaps and bounds. And I think that when you talk about a code of conduct, you have what's considered an industry leading practice today. Talk to me in two years and I bet it's going to be something entirely different, you know? So I think it's certainly needs to be rooted in that specific company's values and even even talking about company values is a right. relatively new even though you have your old line companies that have had values you know that right. people have been able to espouse for you know, generations upon generations it's still a relatively new thing i think for you to hear nearly every company now talking about their company values and even those companies i'm sorry mm-hmm. that have had company values expressed for decades they will dust it off and reevaluate how much it resonates with their employees and with their business partners. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've seen in the last five years, it used to be code of conduct was literally two sentences. We believe in integrity and following the rule of law. I mean, that's, it was, right. that's all it was. Today, it's usually these are our core values. These are the various things. I mean, they're... And you're right, Deborah. Some of them are, are longer, but I found they're so much more personalized to the industry and the company. And I think they're much more effective when you a company posts its core values on the walls mm-hmm. and it's also integrated into the code of conduct. It's just been interesting to watch that morphing of what it's become and what yeah. many, many companies are doing now. And it reflects the changes in our society where people want to work for a company that they believe in, that they feel like they're advancing the mission, whatever the mission may be. And I think that now you're even, I think the next trend wave is to see people saying, all right, this company has you know these five core values. Do we make decisions based upon our values? You know, does our mission statement literally reflect what we're doing and the steps that we're taking in the world. And 
I think that you're still, you've got your industry leaders when it comes to that, and you'll continue to see that evolve, in my opinion. And I think it, it echoes the requirement, really, that when you have a compliance program, it's not a paper program, yeah. that it has real meaning and implementation. I mean, people actually walk the talk. And that's the same thing with values, a corporate set of values, you know, does it really ring authentic? And that's one of the things you're seeing. Um, there are a lot of companies who have these, who market these canned programs to corporations. And what I'm seeing is the companies are either moving away from that, developing their own, or totally revamping those programs, those online programs, which I think is a positive trend mm -hmm. because so many of those canned programs that the companies buy and pay a lot of money for are not, I don't think, super effective. So I think it's great now that we're seeing that trend of revamping, rechanging, and, uh, and making it a lot more company specific. I think it's such a better trend. Which is why you're seeing more in-house ethics and compliance mm -hmm. roles than ever before. Right, because you really have to understand the business to tailor it properly yeah. and have policies and procedures that will be usable and practical and won't be put to the sidelines because it just doesn't make any sense. It's too difficult for people to use. It does make a good compliance program. Gotcha. So I hear you saying you're not just going to go to the ACC website or go to the self and you know pre-buy your code of conduct and related policies for seventy nine ninety nine. Starting and, point, you know, I and think download. To it. Start thinking about how you're going to craft your compliance program. But what's the typical role of the legal department vis-a-vis ethics and compliance? In other words, is ethics and compliance now viewed? as part of the legal department. I know for a while, you know, sometimes it was mm -hmm. reporting to the GC, sometimes it's a separate department. Tell me what's happening in terms of trends. You, you, you touched on, Amy, this idea that it isn't just compliance anymore, it's mm -hmm. compliance and ethics. Is it the trend being part of legal and or is it really a separate department? What I see is that very often it is within legal because very often it is a lawyer who has, you know, swanned into their ethics and compliance self, but there is a lot of thought leadership out there that ethics and compliance should not sit in legal and that there is a disparate, you know, sense of, of compliance is supposed to reveal and legal is supposed to conceal. And there could be times when the two aren't going to agree on a course of action. And so if compliance is within legal, then you're going to go the route of what legal says to do. So it depends, I think. You know, I do not, though, think that yet the trend has started down the path of that thought leadership. I think for the most part, you are seeing it in the legal departments. I think, I think it depends also on company size. Mm -hmm. So not all companies will have in-house counsel. And so you may have people in the business who are like in the shipping department mm -hmm. doubling up and doing compliance or somebody in the finance department handling compliance and they're using outside counsel to advise them on any issues that arise or even in the development of the compliance program. Right. And in the really larger companies that have a sizable legal department, 
and probably a good number of employees and divisions. I think uh, legal is one of the places that you see compliance, but you also see it in the finance function. Yeah. And yeah, and also just a separate compliance function that may be freestanding. Yeah. But one of the things I see less and less are non-lawyer compliance officers. Mm. Um, five, seven years ago when they brought in all the compliance plans and all that, and usually they brought somebody in from the company who handled it. Um, there are very, very few of those folks left. Yeah. And especially with globalization, what you're finding is those folks are being replaced. Yeah. And I've seen that now twice in two companies that I've seen. And it's understandable. I think these days you have to have the legal background. You have to have the knowledge of the changing regulations. But they're still out there. I mean, there's still people who are non-legal compliance officers, chief compliance officers. And it's, I think it's risky. It's very risky. Interesting. It makes me think in some ways um, of the uh, ombudsman role at a newspaper, mm -hmm. um, where you would have essentially someone who is not an employee of the newspaper, yeah. whose job it is to essentially be this kind of third party to kind of weigh in on whether or not a piece was fairly written or accurately written, or um, and you. There was a trend, uh, of course, you know, there aren't new newspapers anymore, sadly, um, uh, but um, there was a trend uh, for a while where you would see ombudsman editorials written, where essentially uh, taking, in your own paper, taking to task that paper, um, or, you know, kind of weighing in on the way something was written or talked about in the paper, which was really interesting. But it's, again, it's that idea, to your yeah. own point, about this notion that, um, not necessarily in the attorney in the legal department, and also maybe not necessarily someone who is specifically legal, an attorney, and, it's this, and it comes from this place of ethics first versus mm -hmm. compliance. Right, the independence, maintaining right. that independence. Right. Right. And, right. Uh, I think there's a lot of argument to be made as to why that, because you also don't want that person to be concerned with their own paycheck. That's another aspect of it. Um, ultimately, you know, sometimes you have to make really difficult decisions or make a really difficult argument when you're in the role of the ethics and compliance officer. Um, Interesting. And in the thought pieces where it's not under legal, mm. where does it, I mean, is it a report directly to the board? Is yeah. it you know, a report directly to CFO? Or okay. CFO or okay. COO. So yeah. it's going straight to a C-suite mm. other than the GC's office. Yeah. Interesting. I know there are a bunch of DOJ rules around compliance programs, and I know you talked about that in your panel. Um, I don't propose to review all those here because this is a you know more practical tips. But I am interested if you since you guys have experience working on compliance policies and practices, if you've got some tips for both GCs and maybe compliance officers that are listening in, saying you know what do I need to do that might be helpful just on a practical level of things to watch out for, or maybe mistakes you've seen that you could have people avoid. Deborah, you want to go first? Sure. I think during the program today, Amy raised the point of maybe you don't have a high regulatory risk or you're not operating in a highly regulated industry, but you have a number of regulatory regimes that you have to be sensitive to. and. If you're dealing overseas, doing any business overseas, or 
using employees from overseas or getting supplies from overseas and what, you know, very few companies, I think, would not fit into that category. You know, the difficulty is, okay, you have to do training and auditing and, you know, policies and procedures for a myriad of regulations and not just U.S. regulations, but other countries. And so I think that one of the things that I would recommend people to think about is how to streamline the process. And when they're thinking about putting together their appliance program, how can they integrate it or integrate the various compliance processes so that there is the least amount of disruption and the maximization of the resources and the spend that they put into their compliance program because what happens is that over time you just keep layering more training, more compliance, you know, for this area, for that country, and then you end up with a hydra. Yeah. Which is very difficult for a business person who's sitting in location XYZ to know who he or she is supposed to go to what forms they have to fill out or people they have to contact. So they have to keep it really at the forefront that this is for business people on the line to use. And I would say, you know, as far as just like like an easy tip. So you have your federal sentencing guidelines that lay out what are the elements of an effective compliance program. And they're, you know, some of which Deborah just mentioned. So figure out where you can get a quick win. You know, if you are speaking with you know, the head of HR and he or she is lamenting about the fact that there's no policy management, there's no, you know, policies are growing wild, nobody knows what's what. Well, that's something, it's an element of an effective compliance program. That's something that you can immediately address, get under control, you don't really need to go externally. You don't need a budget to do it. You know, you just need a little bit of discipline and you need to figure out and you can't necessarily do it all on your own, but like a lot of it, you kind of can do on your own to figure out, all right, this is what we'll say it takes to create a policy. These are the people who need to approve it. There needs to be an owner. There needs to be a manager. Here's a template. Boom, roll it out, start to get your arms around it. You know, that's just an example of one way that you could say, and it may not be policies, it might be something else that you can look at, you know, this is a quick win that we can show, this is how you know the ethics and compliance program is going to add value. This is something that you need, whoever you may be, you know, a business unit owner, one of your, your constituents. Right. That's a great idea because you're using the compliance matrix, but you're actually making an improvement that everyone will appreciate. And, it's very and, and difficult. And maybe couldn't implement without the authority of saying, hey, we need to do this. Right. It's very difficult to prove the negative. That's one of the hardest things about running an ethics and compliance program because so much of what you do is protective. Uh, um, you know, is to say, like, it's we're yeah. it's preventative. We're building this so that if we have a problem, we can show X, Y, Z. And, you know, if you don't have a problem, it's really, really hard to say, no, really, if we have a problem, what I'm doing is really important. So that's why I suggest that if you can figure out ways to show, you know, quick wins or these easy you know, value add, because proving the negative is really, really, especially in a KPI driven um, environment. 
Gotcha. Anything you want to add, Claire, on the quick tips? Yeah, well, you know, I, I totally agree with, with Amy about that. You know, you know, you're looking for the quick wins. You're looking for, but, you know, I, I go in and I review compliance programs. It's a lot of what I do. You know, I'm looking for where are the problems, where do the holes, where do they miss it, right? Um, <laughs> but it's difficult because they're like, well, we've never had this problem. I don't know why we're doing this. And I'm like, well, here's an example why. I'm, I'm always gloom and doom. I'm like, let me talk about X company. This is what happened to them because they didn't do this. Right. And then, of course, everybody gets on board, right? But um, it's hard. You know, you, you, you've got to get those quick wins. Say, okay, we got this done. It's okay. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard. It's a very... And, and companies don't want to spend money on some of this because they're like, we've never had this problem before. We are... We follow the law. We are, you know, and it just takes one slip up right, to make life miserable for that company. So. No, that's good. That's helpful. I know you just came from the panel. Were there any questions from the group or surprises that came up during the panel discussion that you think might be interesting to share? with listeners or other, you mentioned a point Amy made during the panel about this whole, you know, the hydro policies. I'm wondering if there are other, other nuggets that surprising came out. I think it was validation that people are facing similar challenges. I mean, people volunteered examples in various areas of implementing a compliance program and it you know, a lot of people were nodding their heads when people talked. <laughs> I think one of the things that I have really loved about getting into the ethics and compliance field is that it is a very collegial environment. There is a sense that, like, we're all in this together. And, you know, sometimes I feel a little disingenuous sitting up on a panel like an expert. It's more just me saying, this is what I've done, because I've done a whole lot that hasn't worked too. And I, in fact, put up an entire panel in a di at a different conference about mistakes that I've made, learn from my mistakes. But that's part of it too. And I don't know that there's anybody who can say that, you know, they are expert supreme and they're going to, in anything, I guess, in life, you know, but um, especially in this field, we're all just sort of learning from each other. And I think each panel and that you know that wasn't necessarily a surprise in this panel but um, like you said a validation of everybody's sort of trying to figure everything out at the right that time. everybody has challenges yeah. and problems that they face on every level yeah. of putting together and sustaining and maintaining a compliance program and only one person in the audience said that she had enough resources <laughs> You know, so I think, <laughs> okay. and everybody was Only surprised. One. Wow! Right? And, yeah, and everybody was shocked that somebody said that they, that they actually. Well, so that is the right. surprise. That was yes. the surprise. That was the surprise. That wow. is true. But then, you know, to me, then you take a step back as one of the what 150 people in the room, and you say, "All right, wait." Literally, one person feels that they have enough resources. Then, maybe we all need to figure out. Okay. What are the resources that we have and where do we focus them? And if we're all sort of doing the same thing, then, you know, we're driving the ethics and compliance train. Right. And with, with resources, you're primarily talking about budget and ability to spend. Budget, hire head people, counts, personnel. Head yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Budget, head counts. Also, like, tactical resources. You know, do you have access to your company intranet to do with what you will? You know, and that's a resource. Gotcha. Um, 
that isn't always quantifiable, things like that. And is it concerned that because you're not directly revenue generating, you're not going to get the money? I mean, is that the... I'd say that's, the, that's more than that's a, concern. a big, a big <laughs> chunk. Like, that's, that's, okay. That is a statement of fact. Yes. Yes. Right. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not a revenue generating part of the business. Right. But right. that's why it's hard to get resources. Yes. Just why, oftentimes, true in legal department, too. You have to demonstrate where the value <laughs> is because it's right. not always obvious to the business side that right. this is a good use of money. And look, you know, the first time you roll out your big suite of ethics and compliance training, you're going to have a couple of people who are like, oh, yes, we really needed to do this. And they're going to be your surprises. <laughs> I mean, most people aren't like, yippee, it's time for training, you know. <laughs> I mean, so there's already a lot of training that yeah. you're adding to on top of. Yeah. And so you have to be really careful about what the content is and is it impactful and are people going to remember whether it's anti-bribery versus antitrust training right. versus you know is it what which anti you know, is it right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well and, and the you know cultural and language barriers throughout the world and generational differences in learning that was the keynote this morning and talking about how you know certain generations want to see a video and others you know would never want to see a video well you're getting a video or you're not you know right. so i you know you can't have 18 different methods um to cover all your different generations and you just have to kind of hope for the best so right the biggest hurdle for compliance and the biggest hurdle for most things in, in any organization is to, um, and you guys have kind of hit on this already, is getting folks to do what they're supposed to do, right? Like you can come up with the perfect set of rules and strategy and roll out just the most amazing uh, training session ever starring George Clooney, but after everybody leaves and they go back and they're like, all right, so I'm going to go back to what I was doing, which was wrong. What have you found? Um, because it's easy, right? Like typically yes. that's the biggest hurdle, right? Is uh, You have to change behavior. I mean, that so is the goal how, of the compliance program. Passive elements that you all have found, some passive elements, but passive um, whatever that you found that does that that does get uh, accomplish what you're looking for because right like it's we all need to eat our vegetables i don't like yeah. vegetables i'm not going to eat my vegetables but you know right if you came in and checked me every night with <laughs> whatever <laughs> vitamins i needed yes. i'd be good like that would work so what's yeah. what have you found if anything that that is Passive right, a compliance good. injection yeah. where you just go into the employees yeah. while they sleep and inject ethics. It's literally the hardest part of the job is that exactly what you said. I can create the most beautiful, perfect program that you have ever seen, but I cannot be compliance for an organization. No person can. And so even if, you know, look, I think that there isn't, I don't know of any injection answer because I think, you know, first and foremost, you have to be above reproach. And when you are the ethics and compliance officer, you have to be above reproach. That's the simplest way I can put it. You cannot share your employee discount. You know, I mean, that whatever those simple things, you know, you can't cut corners. You can't 
skirt the system in any tiny way that any person would think wasn't a big deal. You might not even think it's a big deal. You can't do it. And it's like cheesy to say it, but you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. And you have to then start to the extent that you can, you hold others accountable for that behavior. And look, at the end of the day, if management and leadership aren't buying into that, then you should go somewhere else and do it somewhere else. Because if they're not buying into it, then what are you doing? Well, just give me an example. You know, I've had clients, obviously, who the compliance program isn't effective and things go wrong. And they look at me and I'm saying, I I hate to tell you this, but there has to be not only a consequence, but you have to let others know. And that's a very difficult situation, right? You know who doesn't want to do it. Yeah. Oh, legal. Right. Legal doesn't want to do it. The managers are like, oh, yeah, but it hurts morale. But I'm like, no, they need to know that so-and-so was illegally using his credit card or whatever yes. and was, was let go. Organizational justice. Yeah, and it's it's very, very touching. Mm-hmm. Is that effective? In, in your experience, Claire, have you found that that does create the, the shift in the organizational id or whatever? The, does it... Does it have that change? It depends actually what it is. I have to say, like for example, the credit card fraud, they're using the misusing the credit card. That actually has some effect because people at the levels usually don't want to lose their jobs. Those folks who, for example, are involved in anti-bribery stuff, mm-hmm. and they're getting kickbacks and they're getting the bonuses and stuff, probably a little less effective. Yeah. Um, but you know, you have to try. You've got to try to do that because, if, first of all, the worst thing that will ever happen is like nothing happened to that person. They got a slap yep. on the wrist. That is the worst thing that can happen. You know, they've got to be fired. You know, if it's minor, they've got to be suspended. But right. um, they don't want to do that. Right. And that, that is, to me, the biggest issue I see to try to get people to follow the rules. Well, so that's the, uh, the stick. Deborah, mm-hmm. are there some examples that you can think of of the carrot? Well, you know, you have uh, sometimes companies give awards like value champions and, you know, highlight people in newsletters and as employees who reflect the values, who have come forward. I think companies shy away from giving bonuses or anything like that. They try to make it non-monetary and try to give recognition as an incentive or a carrot for encouraging that kind of behavior. I think you have the human nature is a small percentage of the population is going to do the right thing 100% of the time, no matter what, no matter who's looking. And a small percentage of the population is not going to ever do the right thing. You know, that they're wired to do wrong. And then everyone in the middle, and the middle's a very, the largest swath is swayable. And it's how you reach those people and it's exactly what Claire is talking about which is if you have you know the people at the top some ethical failure and if you think people don't know about it think again everybody knows everything that happens at most companies and you know one of the things that I've sort of talked about is allow the water cooler talk because you cannot necessarily as much as I would love to publish a newsletter 
this person did this thing wrong, they were this level, and they got fired. They're, no, but legal staff can let you do that. <laughs> um, they and they have do that. That's good right. reasons and yeah, for and it. And they you do. Know. And they absolutely do. And they absolutely do. do. Yeah. So That's instead, hard. though, let me tell you that a lot of people know that that happened. And so I think that the you know a lot of times people want to stop that water cooler talk. But that is how people know when companies make the right decision. And if companies don't act and don't fire that person, then you think that someone is going to think that there's anything wrong with saying that their per diem was exceeded, you know, what, whatever the small thing may be. People are not going to think that's bad when they know that real bad things have been let go. Interesting. Great. I know we're about out of time, but anybody else have any final either tidbits or other questions or topics maybe that we didn't get to here? I think if not, all right. Well, thank yeah. you very much, Amy, Claire, Deborah. Thank this was really interesting. I mean, we ended up having a really interesting discussion at almost a <laughs> philosophical level no about laughs. compliance. <laughs> well, we're laughing now. Thank, all right. thank goodness. Here at the end, I was told there'd end. be a Star Wars quiz. We can we can really? arrange for a uh, we can do a Star Wars quiz. Oh, come on, just I'm a few questions, but don't let me participate because I'm over. It doesn't have to be Star Wars. Anything nerd? Do just a nerd test. Wow. Brian's my quizzer. Yeah, but that's right. Go to your old one. You can edit it. Yeah. That's like the most. It's like I was told there'd be a test of wills. I know. A test of trivia. Yeah, that's right. Feats of strength. So we do. You know. The airing of grievances. Do you have access to the old one? That's you two. Different show. Yeah. Best of us for the rest of us. Right. I may be able to find one. Yeah. So. All right, Are they trying to find some trivia? We're going to find some trivia for you. If, it, if you were promised trivia, we're going to deliver right. trivia yeah, here. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do it. I, I will say, I will say for, the, for, the, for a lot of our standard podcasts, we do a, a trivia quiz at the end. For the ACC, because we're doing so many and they're blocked together. We have not generally done it, but you want trivia. We're going to give you trivia. I've got, I've got trivia for you here. Uh, I've got oh a couple topics. Let's see. I've got all our old scripts, Brian. So let's see. Uh, we can. We'll run through a couple. Because you know, I, do you ever listen to like the radio in the morning and the people call in and they have you know two, like it's the guy you know the the disc jockey versus right. the person calling in and you're sitting there like what's wrong with you? Right. You know, it's like <laughs> that's easy as five questions, but right. like you're not on the spot. And so I always wonder, you know, like could I perform? So. <laughs> I fail. So here we go. There's no All right. Well, this All is right. a fun quiz. This okay. is right. a uh, quiz. this is a uh, robots and cyber quiz. Oh. How about this? Uh, you know somebody that does cyber. You asked for it. All right. All right. So do you remember this? This is the Alan O'Rourke quiz. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. So one of the most iconic robots in science fiction. He first appeared in the 1956 movie Forbidden Planet, and later appeared in episodes of Lost in Space, Twilight Zone, and oddly. Columbo, can you name the robot? And we'll let all three. That's a hard enough question. We'll let all three of you collaborate oh, on that answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay, Brian, we're thinking it's because they're good <laughs> and well-researched wow. quizzes. 
For listeners who can't see the faces, I see grimaces, concern, yeah. Yeah. angst. Yeah. Do you want to read the question one more time? Maybe. One more time. Give us some. It's uh, a robot. You said? This, this is, is one really of the most esoteric. iconic robots in science fiction. <laughs> he first appeared in 1956 movie Forbidden Planet. It's not Elf. He was also in Lost in Space, Twilight Zone, and Oddly Columbo. It it begins with the letter R. R the R. Right. Ricky the robot. That's actually yeah. right. It is the robot. What the oh. robot? What name that begins with R? You're very close. Just Randy. through inadvertent randomness. No, no, it's like Randy? A... No, sorry. I don't even. Uh, I don't even think I I'll know it when you say it. All right, it's it. Robbie yeah. the robot. Yep. Yeah. All right. No, this one, this one, at least for me, is a little okay. easier. Right. Okay, that yeah. was hard. Not originally built to provide security, this famous robotic duo have saved Luke, Leia, and Han, and arguably the universe, more than a few times. Name the duo. C-3PO and r 2 Very good. Okay. Woo-hoo. I see everyone agreeing yes. on that. Yes. That was the softball. And yeah, now, uh, and now a well. middle pitch. So we had the fastball, <laughs> the softball. Okay. Here, comes, here come two that I think are more down the middle. All right, all right. Optimus Prime. A robot that can reassemble Trent, himself into an 18-wheeler mm-hmm. is a hero of what 80s cartoon that's now yes. a blockbuster movie? I think Deborah jumped right into it with Transformers. Or All right, very good. Yep. And Bonus how about points, Deborah, if you make the sound effect of them transforming? <laughs> I can't make it. <laughs> wow, that's rough. Yeah. Well, you can sing the song. <laughs> Robots in disguise. Right. That's impressive. <laughs> that is extra yeah, Brian's keeping us, Alan. That's very good, Andy. All right, that's pretty good. All right, and then the last robot question, okay. and then you okay. can decide how much punishment you want. We can jump into another quiz if we have to. Mm. Maximilian is the ominous red robot protector of Dr. Han Reinhardt, a mad scientist to determine one of these lifeless vortexes for which the film is named. Maximilian. The robot Maximilian. But if you listen closely, yeah. the question also has Vortex. a little bit of a clue. Yeah, okay. He's determined to explore one of these lifeless vortexes the for which the film is named. Black the hole. vortex? Amy gets it with a black hole! <laughs> Pulling it out of nowhere. Congratulations. <laughs> wow, impressive. I've seen the film The Black Hole. Have not. Is Disney, it good? Disney's The Black Hole is. Really? Uh, yeah, go check it out. Yes. Yes. Oh, vortex. Uh, yes. It came out the same year as Star Wars. That's why I know why. I was really upset you didn't ask. Like 2000. Uh, it was a how? Disney movie. Uh, has been cited um, as the reason why Disney went so so long without doing another um, live action film or a film that was quote unquote dark. Wow. Uh, oh. Because it's a it's a, a it's really fairly dark. dark yeah. Uh, yeah, it is really Disney, really, good. really? Yeah. wow. 1978, 79. Really good. Yes. If, if you're in the mood for one more round, I do have pulled up Ben Franklin trivia. Oh, I want that one. Oh, Claire's excited. All right, you want that Franklin? From robots to Ben Franklin. I know no smart stuff. We for those for those dedicated podcast listeners, this may be familiar from our interview with Chris Ferry, General Counsel of American Residential Services, one of the largest electric service companies in the country. So appropriately, we came up with Ben Franklin trivia for him, but we'll see how our compliance panel can do. Question one: Ben Franklin built his wealth as a printer 
land speculator and publisher of what famous annual book? Poor Richard's Almanac. Poor Richard's Almanac. Wow, we've got smart folks here. That is correct. The publication was printed from 1732 to 1758, sold as many as 10,000 copies a year, which is a lot for that time period. All right, question two. Franklin was an inventor and tinkerer. Which of these is not something he created? A, a toothpaste used to clean wooden teeth. B, a musical instrument made of glass and used by both Mozart and Beethoven. And C, a phonetic alphabet that eliminated redundant letters like C, J, Q, and W. So you have to tell me which is not a Franklin invention. The toothpaste, the musical instrument, or the phonetic alphabet. A. A. I have two A's and I have an uncertain look on Deborah's face. Uh, I don't know. I'd say C. She would go with C. A is a correct answer. We got some smart panelists here. <laughs> the instrument is called a glass harmonica, and it's essentially several spinning glass bulbs played by rubbing a wet finger on them. So I, I didn't think he invented it, though. Finger things. Well, mm-hmm. apparently, according to our experts, he <laughs> And then uh, he unveiled his scheme for a new alphabet, which is the one you picked in a 1779 essay. Yeah, that was, it was one that he did not invent. No, so no, the one he did not do is toothpaste. Right. Toothpaste. right. He did do an instrument. He did the glass bulbs, and he did the... Uh, question three. Fans of the show might remember Abraham Lincoln is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame. That's a yet another podcast trivia. It turns out Benjamin Franklin is also in a sports Hall of Fame. Which do you think it is? Basketball Hall of Fame? International Swimming Hall of Fame? Or International Kiteboarding Hall of Fame? Kiteboarding? Kiteboarding? The second was swimming, right? Swimming? B. And yeah, basketball. I think it's B. I'm going to say basketball. It is B. It is, right. it is swimming. Yeah, basketball wasn't... One of know, his first inventions was a pair of wooden paddles that fit over your hands for swimming. Mm-hmm. And he was a big swimming advocate. You know, I'm three for three right now. Okay. He did claim to have used a kite to skim across a pond, but as far as we can tell, there is no spot for him in kiteboarding all the mm. So it's a good thought. Final question for the day. Like many of his fellow founding fathers, Franklin is credited with establishing several important public services, which include two of these. So I'm going to give you three. Two are Franklin, one is not. A, our country's first volunteer fire department. B, our country's first public library. Or C, our country's first police department. Fire department, public library, police department. Whatever which clears it. Two? I think it's the think police it's department. See, police, you're saying that's what he did not do? He did not do. You are correct. Ha! Ah, four for four. I go, made girl. my last time when I was over five. Yeah. No, Claire rocked it out. I and did. It's, it's all I here on the tapes. Congratulations. Thank you. Very much. All right. Well, you did a double boat. How about a bonus double quiz? Although they're repeats. We've never done that for any panel before. Woohoo! Come so on, this, this is a first. This is a first in podcast history. Now here we know for who the smart people the are. The roundhouse. And so, yeah. people who watch TV. We've rocked so. the podcast. Yeah. Congratulations. That was awesome. That was you. good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Amy, Claire, Deborah, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And listeners, if you wish, you remember you can subscribe to the In-House Roundhouse on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. You can find all our previous episodes on the Womble Bond Dickinson website. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the others. Feel free to give us a rating on iTunes. And we've got some exciting ones coming up for the rest of this Austin conference. So listen in. I appreciate you listening, and I'll see you at the next station.